0: such things happen? Can such things happen? Yes. The flip side of it is that from everything we know for the last 30, 40, 50 years, it's very rare. Way back in the
1: fall of 1960, a myth was born. A long presidential campaign between then-Vice President Richard Nixon and a young senator from Massachusetts named Jack Kennedy had resulted in a photo finish, the closest presidential vote of the 20th century. And while the man for whom this institution was later named was pronounced the victor, there were murmurs about the results. In Chicago in particular, Mayor Richard Daley was suspected of inappropriately tipping the scales for his political ally in order to deliver Illinois' 27 electoral college votes. Although efforts by researchers to find evidence of fraud have found nothing untoward, For some, the idea that the 1960 election might have been rigged stands as an example of the possibility, and that's enough for concern. The 2016 race has seen more discussion of rigged elections than any in recent memory. So today, we're gonna dive in. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and helping to give us some perspective on electoral fraud in the United States is HKS professor Alex Kaysar, author of The Right to Vote, The Contested History of Democracy in the United States. Professor Kaysar, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. So the 2016 presidential election has seen an awful lot of talk about rigged elections. Um, here in the U.S., that feels a little bit out of place. Um, why is it that the sanctity of U.S. elections uh, is considered beyond reproach?
0: Well, I, I might question the premise there a little bit. I, I'm not sure that the sanctity of U.S. elections is considered beyond reproach. Um, I think there are a lot of ways in theory and a few in practice in which you could try to meddle with an election. Um, I think the one, although it's not been much in the news this fall, uh, the, the one which probably is likely to have the greatest bearing on this election, although not necessarily on the outcome, is through creating legal obstacles to keep people from the polls. And by these, I mean voter ID laws. Um, or laws uh, mandating smaller number of precincts, smaller number of voting locations, um, how many voting locations will be available for early voting. Uh, The most important of these seems to be the voter ID laws, and we have in 16 states uh, in this election there will be new voter ID laws in place. Mm -hmm. And we know that uh, voter ID laws, particularly the stricter ones, can pose problems uh, for people uh, trying to vote. Uh, the, the people affected are predominantly poor, and the poor elderly and the poor young. So that, that's one way in which we don't normally think of that as the sanctity of elections, but if, if, if you want to think broadly about what you mean by sanctity of elections, which is the guaranteeing that every person who is legally eligible is able to cast a vote, the votes are counted fairly and totaled fairly, uh, that's an issue.
1: Obviously, that those laws are often targeted at defeating voter fraud, um, the idea of kind of ballot box stuffing or people showing up to vote who aren't eligible. Um, that is only one way that elections can be uh, shifted one way or the other. Can you describe some of the other ways? What historically in the United States have been the major problems um, when it comes to elections?
0: Well, there, there have been problems of different types and cutting in different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there have the wave of, uh, you know, not to stress this too much, but the, the wave of voter suppression laws that we've seen in the last 10 years is not unprecedented. It happened in northern states aimed at immigrants in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And obviously it happened wholesale to African-Americans in the South in the late 19th and early 20th century. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's on the voter suppression side. Um, in terms of actual voter fraud, or the United States has a colorful history of, of voter fraud, of, um, you know, political machines uh, voting the dead. This is in the 19th century more than in the 20th, but even occasionally in the 20th. Um, and of, uh, you know, c- ballot little ba- ballot box stuffing. I mean, what perhaps the most celebrated instance that, that – uh, you know, that is widely known was the race which brought Lyndon Johnson to the Senate uh, in the 1940s when, as I recall the story, and this is something close to the truth, um, a, just as the polls were closing, a crucial sort of 160 or 200 people showed up in one precinct in South Texas, where miraculously they all from the from the registration and sign-in books, they appeared to have arrived in alphabetical order, um, <laughs> and cast their ballots. and Lyndon Johnson won that won that primary by you know less than two hundred votes, and that was the decisive margin. and There was a very complicated court case. So, do such things happen? Can such things happen? Yes. Um, the flip side of it is that from everything we know for the last 30, 40, 50 years, it's very rare. It's, um, it's not systemic. I think that the issues of potential fraud or abuse of the system right now as it exists, uh, is greater with absentee ballots and in those states, like some in the Pacific Northwest, that are using primarily mail in ballots. Um, the fact the fact is that once once your ballot has to travel <laughs> from your home a ballot that is filled out uh from your home to someplace else it introduces a greater element of risk mm-hmm. and we and there are stories uh that have been around some documented of people going door to door and saying um well have you mailed in your ballot yet if you if you if you haven't you can fill it out now and I'll go mail it for you you know um So that you know that that uh, that is a potential cause of concern, Uh, but that said, let me say two things about uh, two other things about fraud and rigging and cheating elections. Um, The kind of fraud that voter ID laws is designed to prevent is a particular kind of fraud, which is called sort of uh, sort of in-person voter impersonation fraud. It's when I go to the polls and pretend to be you. Uh, and sign in as you and um, you know and go vote and uh, you know in Massachusetts, you don't have to show any ideas at the polls for example i i I could easily do that except for your first time so I guess you're right mm-hmm. okay okay that's that's that 's right <laughs> under Hava, uh, uh, the fir- the first time you vote okay your your first time is more recent than mine <laughs> um, but um so y- 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 voter impersonation fraud as far as we can tell, really is absolutely, absolutely minuscule to the extent that it exists at all. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Indiana uh, was one of the first states to pass a new fairly strict voter ID law. Actually, it was very strict at the time, but other states have passed stricter ones. And in Indiana, it was agreed in the court case that came about uh, after the law was passed. It was agreed by both sides, by Republicans and by Democrats, that there had not been a single instance of uh, voter impersonation fraud in Indiana in 50 years. Mm -hmm. And serious studies have been done, and they turn up precious little evidence that this occurs.
1: Given that history of voter fraud or electoral fraud in general over the last, well, in the history of the United States, isn't it fair for some people to worry about uh, the fact that it's it might be possible for someone to go in and um, potentially dilute the value of their vote by doing something like the impersonation, even if it hasn't happened yet? Isn't there always that specter that? you know, a campaign could covertly organize some effort to try and move the vote through that mechanism?
0: It's a good good question. Um, And I think that there are the broad construct here is that any electoral system is going to have a set of trade-offs between access to the ballot box and security. You can get maximum security and give up and give up access. I mean, you could, for example, require everybody to come and show not only their driver's license, their passport, or their birth certificate every time they come to vote. Um, but that would keep a lot of people from <laughs> from from getting to the polls. I mean, do you know where your birth certificate is as as we speak? Um, you know, and, and there are you know one could be concerned. For example, to take to take this question of citizenship, mm-hmm. um, you have to be a citizen to vote in Massachusetts, okay? But you don't have to prove your citizenship uh, in order to vote, or, or, or in order to register. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they instituted a law like that, it would it would it would prevent you know someone who was a non citizen from voting. And there are occasional stories. Usually, not very. Uh, they're not malign stories. It's almost accident stories of people who are legal permanent residents, who are told they can vote, or think they can vote, or are confused, and they actually register to vote. Um, what weighs in on the others side? I mean, again, we know this, this can happen. It's very, you know, as far as we know, it's extremely unusual, and the cost to the electoral system and the other voters of tightening up the system would be uh, w- would be very high. Mm-hmm. The other thing we know, and this goes back to you know concerns about cheating or rigged elections, is for example on the question of citizenship. The last thing in the world a non-citizen living in the United States, whether fully legal or undocumented, wants to do is to get caught committing voter fraud because they're out of the country in about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a, v- a, f- a very well-known story, I think it's from the 2000 or 2004 election, of a, a legal permanent resident in Florida. I think he owned a small s- store. And he went to to renew his driver's license. And the person at the motor vehicle bureau bu- gave him a voter registration form, which he filled out. And he thus assumed, well, an, a, somebody official is giving me this form, that means I can vote. And he went and he did vote. Mm-hmm. And he got caught because he was not legal. And he was deported uh after living in the country for almost almost a decade mm-hmm. so the, the costs are very very high and it's hard to believe that most people in that situation would really value um you know casting an extra ballot you know which is unlikely to have any any effect mm-hmm. in terms of but it's to say that there you can have a small number of individual incidents like that to have any systematic rigging that would involve this kind of voter fraud would be extraordinarily difficult to arrange without getting caught. I mean, what would you have to do? Recruit 10,000 people into the scheme to go uh, show up at the polls? If, you know, I don't think, uh, if you could find 10,000 people who would be willing to go and vote fraudulently, it would be extremely unlucky to me that two of them wouldn't talk about it afterwards. Uh, on, the, on the other hand,
1: with uh, most of these voter ID laws, it, the basically the idea is that you have to show uh, some sort of identification when you when you go to vote. Um, it's hard to imagine many people in getting by in this country without having some form of ID already, although obviously some uh, some do not. It has has there been work to prove? that's enough to stop people from voting?
0: Yes, it's not a large number of people, but it's, uh, it's a number of, we don't ha- the numbers are not precise, but um, it can be, depending on the area, between five and 10% of, of the less privileged members of a society, of poor and, and, and minority groups. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact is that and when you say ID, well, it depends on what kind of ID Um, is required. Um, You know, in the famous Texas law, which is now suspended by the courts but could reappear, um, in most states, the new wave of ID laws, it has to be a current government-issued photo ID. Okay. So what that means is, for example, if you're 80 years old and you gave up your driver's license, uh, you don't have one. Most Americans do not have passports. Although you know we we think of it as oh well, you bring your passport. Most Americans do not have passports, and it's many of the young and the elderly who do not ha- you know who who do not have driver's licenses. Um, in some states, there are also now tr- the, the difficulties obtaining an ID. I mean, for one thing, if you if you don't have a driver's license, the states will issue an ID, um, but you have to gather together your uh, Birth certificate and a number of other documents, and you have to go to an office, which sometimes is not well located. Again, we have to, you know, we're thinking, about, you know, in, in an area, an area like the Boston area, which has public transportation however much we complain about it, but it has public transportation. It's a fairly compact area. Mm -hmm. There were a number of stories that came out this summer in states that had changed their laws, where um, in rural counties, people would have to drive 80, 85 miles to get to the the office, which would issue an ID. Um, And by definition, these were people who didn't have driver's licenses, (laughs) which meant they probably didn't have cars.
1: Right. Back in 2013, the Supreme Court ruled, uh, basically struck down a provision from the Voting Rights Act of 1965 um, that essentially made it so if states change their voting laws, they need to have those changes pre-approved by the federal government. Um, A lot of people were uh, pretty upset about uh, about this ruling. Has it actually yielded uh, demonstrable changes in um, state voting laws?
0: Yes, the 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 Shelby decision um, in 2013, which, as you correctly point out, got rid of the preclearance provision, or well, what it technically did was to void the formula that decided which states and counties were covered. Um, but no, it did it, – it had an immediate effect. Well, again, I don't want to be, belabor the Texas case, but uh, Texas had passed a very draconian law, which had been turned back by the preclearance provision. And the same day that the Shelby decision was handed down, Texas implemented th- that, that law. Um, Alabama, Mississippi, North Carolina also uh, did the same thing. North Carolina passed a very, very severe law, which again now has been checked in some, in some respects uh, by the courts because it may have gone too far. Mm-hmm. So the uh, the irony of this is that the argument of Chief Justice Roberts uh, uh, in, this, in the decision getting rid of the preclearance provision, but the argument in effect was um, it, things have changed and it's not needed anymore. Um, was in many respects proved to be false within a few weeks after the decision was issued by the scamper of various states to pass laws that even federal courts have, um, have begun to suggest are discriminatory. Mm-hmm. Let, let me add in one more thing uh, on a dangling thread of this conversation about, about, about voter ID, um, which is – I don't think we can, will, or even should necessarily go back to an era of not having IDs, and I'm not sure that we're not requiring any kind of ID to vote. I think uh, I, th- I think a case can be made that it's a reasonable thing to ask. Most countries do ha- require IDs in order to vote, but the countries that require IDs in order to vote also have a policy of making it the responsibility of public authorities to make sure that everybody has an ID. Mm -hmm. um and you know it can happen you know for example when you reach your 18th birthday or when you graduate from high school uh everybody is issued an id um you could even do it at birth and Mm -hmm. keep and and keep track of it and when you enter the country uh you know or become a citizen i mean there this is not beyond the capacity of of Modern government and 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 modern technology. I mean, we have a whole social security apparatus which basically does this. Um, So my own view is that if you pass a law, uh, and the law that comes closest to this in many respects is Rhode Island's, which is not which is which is it does have a vote a photo ID law, um, and a photo ID provision, but it's a it's it's a pretty reasonable one. You just have to change the question of who's responsible for making sure everybody has one. Uh, It should be the state because these are state laws Um, and not up to elderly individuals to go traipsing around to try to put together all the documents to find one.
1: Uh, Well, That speaks to one of the unique characteristics of American democracy in that, uh, well, we have our voting laws determined by 50 independent uh, governments. is this is that a good thing or a bad thing? I, I I can see a a case for it being good because it'd be hard to rig a, an entire national election. But on the other hand, it seems like these these isolated incidents of, of even where you're talking about the voter ID cases, those are certain states where the problems are are worst, and they're not affecting the rest of the country.
0: Yeah. No. I, I look. I I, I mean. I, I think you're right on. Uh, on both aspects of that, I mean, ironically, the, uh, you know, a significant fringe benefit of our extremely clumsy s- system is that there would be no way to centrally rig an election. You know, there, <laughs> there is, there is no computer that some alleged Russian hacker can, can, you know, can plug into and determine the whole way in which uh, the U.S. votes. It's just the situation is too decentralized, too clunky, um, and uh, it, it does prevent that kind, that kind of rigging. It also means that there are terrible inefficiencies, um, that there are different standards, that there are, you know, d- different standards for equipment, that there are uh, different standards for how many, you know, how long lines should be. Um, and, you know, and some states have extremely uh, antiquated equipment, while other, other states um, actually, a, a number of states after the two thousand election, of course, rushed out and brought the shiniest new technological toys, um, many of which turned out to be very flawed and they had to go buy then new systems a- again. Um, I think that uh, I think we need to move towards some greater standardization, um, although I think some autonomy. Of administration can be, you know, can be, can be left in the hands of the states. Um, I think we should ju- we should narrow the number of different discrepancies. I and then I, I also think, to be honest, I think that we need to make our actual suffrage laws uniform if we're going to have national elections. I mean, to take uh, the most glaring example is that. Uh, a person who has committed a felony at some point in their life who lives in Florida cannot vote. And that person living in about 40 other states, if they've served their term, et cetera, would be able to vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this affects a non-trivial number of people. Um, and it seems to me uh, inherently uh, bad policy to, to have... Suffrage rights be possible for the same person in different states mm-hmm.
1: so getting back to the question of rigged elections, which seems so uh, popular in this particular election, obviously the calls the, the the questions about rigged elections have predominantly come from donald trump um, and. I gather they're not. He's not bringing up voter ID laws as the uh, as the problem in the situation. Uh, are there legitimate grounds that he might have for uh, problems that aren't being surfaced otherwise?
0: No, I, I, I don't think, or certainly to my knowledge, there aren't. You know, there 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 are not grounds for this. Um, I mean, he has bought into and now enlarged and intensified um, a mythology that is widely believed by Republicans. It's an interesting partisan mythology that voter fraud is rampant in the United States. I mean, the you know, the governor of Texas, in passing the strict voter ID law, says, you know, v- voter fraud is rampant in Texas and elsewhere. They can't find any examples of it. Um, but... You know, and there was a poll done a couple months ago uh, that which said that uh, I think it was 58 percent of Republicans believed that uh, voter fraud is very common. So, you know, Trump is repeating something that is already widely believed by a lot of his constituency. And, you know, my my hunch, I don't have any. Uh, real information. My my hunch is that he didn't go out and do any personal research to see whether there was validity to this claim. That doesn't seem to be his style, um, and you know, so so he he's buying into that. He's perpetuating. He's enlarging it. There, there's another dimension to this, though, which and I think that it's this other dimension which, uh, which many people in the voting rights community and and other communities find uh, to, to be. Worries and objectionable, because there, there is a racialized dimension to his charge about fraud. And he says, you know, where is the fraud? It's happening, you know, in the inner cities. It's happening in the cities of Philadelphia, Chicago, and St. Louis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and this, this taps into, you know, an older mythology uh, in— United States that somehow people of other races and ethnicities uh, cheat and don't respect democracy and don't respect democratic rules and they're going to cheat and take something away from us, and that is a charge, uh, uh, an accusation that Trump, it seems to me, is uh, is is really r- repeating um and it's about not the presence of fraud but who would commit fraud and who in and, and whose name and i think that kind of that kind of suggestion is pernicious
1: mm. as the demographics of this country shift and continue to shift do you see any hope that uh, will be addressing these problems uh, more effectively
0: I think that that there there are two different issues there. One is that I can see a combination of changing demographics and the courts leading to the development of a voter ID regime, a common voter ID regime um that is much closer to being sensible than than the you know than the one which exists now which ranges from nothing to very very strict. Laws. I mean, the uh, the federal courts, several different federal courts, both district and appeals courts, um, have you know have have basically said that for a they can't find the rationale for the laws because they can't find fraud uh, either, and b that they thought that they think that the laws n- need to have make some greater provision for people who don't have the standard IDs to be able to vote. You could vote and you could sign an affidavit saying I don't have an ID. You know, mm-hmm. this, or this is why I don't have an ID. You know, and, and that's the end of the story. It's softening those laws. Um, it would seem to, one could see a way in which uh, the, the courts and then working with legislatures um, in this changing demographic environment could evolve a, a new set of laws uh, or a new set of standards like that and could... Uh, could, could put this problem away. It's not, it's not going to happen right away, although I think steps will go in that direction. I think also, as the Republican Party, which has been the, the, you know, the sponsor of these voter ID laws, begins to recognize that not only with the presidency, but with other, law, with other uh, offices as well, that it is going to need minority voters in order to win elections. And thus, taking, you know, th- taking steps that, that antagonize a lot of people is not in their best interest. So I could see that kind of shift evolving. On the voter on the Voting Rights Act, or um, it will take uh, some more courageous Republican leadership in Congress than than we have had. There are there has been legislation drawn up in 2014, 2015. There are a couple of different approaches uh, for re, you know for replacing the Voting Rights Act or al- altering it. With a different coverage formula or a system where you get bailed in, rather than you know, if you have a certain number of offenses, then you then you then you're subject to pre-clearance, um, and members of Congress disagree about which is best. But I th- but I I think uh, that's something that that could be worked out. Thus far, um, the the committees in the House, which have jurisdiction uh, over this issue, have refused to even hold hearings. And if if the partisan structure of the House remains uh, what it has been or anything close to it, um, I think that that's, that kind of legislation is not going anywhere in the foreseeable future.
1: Well, uh, not the brightest note to end on, but... I, Alex Kaysar, so so good to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on PolicyCast.
0: Oh, thank you. It's been fun talking to you.
1: HKS professor Alex Kaysar is the author of The Right to Vote, The Contested History of Democracy in the United States. You can find a link to it in the show notes. HKS PolicyCast is a production of Harvard Kennedy School. It's produced by Matt Cadwalader along with Natalie Montana, Sarah Abrams, and Becky Wickle with help from Catherine Serafin on distribution. You can follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast or find links to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartMedia, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. See you next week.